Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. Across the pond in Glasgow, Scotland, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP26, is in its second week, and you have probably heard something about this shindig. It is a big deal. 200 nations represented, 120 heads of state, from Joe Biden to Boris Johnson to Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron, Justin Trudeau, all kinds of people. And not just politicians, there's celebrities over there. Leo DiCaprio is there, of course. Stella McCartney is there. David Attenborough, Emma Watson, Idris Elba, Matt Damon by Zoom. <laughs> and a whole bunch of big name CEOs, billionaires, plutocrats galore. Jeff Bezos was in the house. Bill Gates was in the house. You know, all kinds of people with all kinds of money, way more money than you or I have, God knows. You know, in a year of hell and high water, we have not yet ever devoted an entire episode of this show to the most serious existential crisis, an apocalyptic threat facing our planet. We thought we ought to remedy that this week in honor of COP26. And so we have with us today an appearance by a guest, one of those multi-billionaire capitalists over there flouncing around. Glasgow, although I got to say, if you've ever been to Glasgow, you know there's no flouncing that goes on there. But this guy, he was there last week at COP26, someone who I have known for about 25 years. I've covered him in various guises in his career, someone who has a huge legacy in the world as one of the prime movers in the information age, one of the main power brokers in Silicon Valley, a venture capitalist who had a lot to do with the PC boom, the internet boom, all kinds of booms, and sometimes some bubbles, occasionally even a bust. But this is a pretty big deal, this dude, over the course of the last decade or so, has shifted his focus almost entirely towards working on solutions to this existential environmental imbroglio that we all face. A guy who has just published an excellent new book on that very topic called Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving the climate crisis. We are pleased to have him here today, the one and only John Doerr. The state of the planet is imperiled, and that's due to the climate crisis. Everything we're doing is not nearly enough. We've got to cut emissions in half by 2030. We are not on track to do that. It is no exaggeration to say that John Doerr is one of the most important people in shaping the information age as we now know it. Since 1980, he has been a partner in one of the most influential, successful, profitable, and dominant venture capital firms in the world, certainly in Silicon Valley, that firm, Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers. From his perch there, John Doerr, back in the 1980s, helped spawn the first big valley boom by backing companies that you've heard of, like Sun Microsystems and Compaq and Lotus and Intuit and more. And then, as if that wasn't enough, in his second act as a venture capitalist, he became really the most powerful, best known, really kind of the signature financier of the internet era. It's the guy who put the first money into Netscape and put the first money into Amazon.com and also put some of the very first dollars into a little company you may be familiar with called Google. John Doerr still sits on the board of Google, really on the board of its parent company, Alphabet. And, you know, he does a whole bunch of other things, too. He continues to be on a handful of other boards. He served as a member 
of his friend Barack Obama's Presidential Economic Recovery Advisory Board back in 2009 in that first term when Obama was in the White House. But really, since around 2006, 2007, Doerr's most intense focus, and when it comes to John Doerr, intensity is hard to overstate, his most intense focus has been on the climate crisis as an investor in clean energy firms and other forms of green tech, as a high-powered lobbyist in front of governments, legislators, executives around the world for a more aggressive climate policy, and even, I think it's fair to say, as a kind of climate activist who today finds a lot of common ground with the likes of Greta Thunberg and others who say that the leadership of the industrialized world, its governments, its corporations, its assorted fat cats, people who really pull the strings of power, they're all moving way too slowly and way too timidly and way too irresponsibly when it comes to taking the steps required to save this fragile, unique, and kind of cool planet of ours from its all-too-inexorable march towards an all-too-imminent and predictable demise. Back in 2007, in a much-noticed TED Talk, John Doerr stood up and declared, I am really scared. I don't think we're going to make it. 14 years later, John Doerr is still scared, maybe more scared than he was before, but he's also, he says, hopeful because he thinks he sees a pathway to avoiding our planetary self-destruction if we can just summon the will, the passion, the courage, the political wherewithal to do what's required to keep this world of ours from literally being engulfed in hell and high water. We meet with the eyes of history upon us and the profound questions before us. It's simple. Will we act? Will we do what is necessary? Will we seize the enormous opportunity before us? Or will we condemn future generations to suffer? This is the decade that will determine the answer. So let this be the moment that we answer history's call here in Glasgow. Let this be the start of a decade of transformative action that preserves our planet and raises the quality of life for people everywhere. We can do this. So that's Joe Biden in Glasgow at COP26 last week at that big climate summit that everybody heard about. He took a little nap at one point, which I thought was great. A lot of people <laughs> mocked him for it, but I was envious. I was jealous. John, when you saw Joe Biden napping, did you think, man, I wish I could do that? I do that. I think a daily power nap energizes you and he needs all the energy he can muster. Yeah. It'd be better if you did it off camera though. That's one of the things that you and I agree on. If you're going to do a power nap, it's better to do it in private. That's easy for me to arrange. Tougher for you. <laughs> True. Hey, it's good to see you, man. It's been a while. It's been way too long. How are you? I'm well. Are you happy, healthy? I mean, I know wealthy, but are you happy and healthy? <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> on a good day, I get to run six miles. That's good. Yeah. Uh, on a good year, I get to run six miles. That's sort of the difference between you and me. Were you there for Biden? I know you went to Glasgow. Were you there for that speech or what? I was there for five days I was in Glasgow. Basically all last week. Correct. I missed the demonstrations, the 100,000 right. people. I was planning to go and then decided at the last minute not to go for various televisual related reasons. And I was a little disappointed, although I heard it rained most of the time. So I was not that bummed to miss that. But um, just give me your overall impression of like what happened there. It seemed like a lot of movement, a lot of activity, a lot of famous people, a lot of heads of state, some celebrities, some business people. What's your takeaway after a week in Glasgow? Well, we got more pledges. And the question is, will we get more action? 
I think a lot of important heads of state were no-shows. China didn't make it there. Right. Russia didn't make it there. Yeah. So it all, all turns on whether or not we're going to act. The last day I was there, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, issued a forecast that if all the revised pledges that were made were followed through with action, we would get to an increase in temperature of 1.8 degrees Celsius. Now, they also indicated that by 2030, we would only reduce emissions by an estimate of 10 to 12 percent. We need to cut them, John, by 55 percent to have a reasonable chance of ending with a habitable planet. And so the pledges are a step forward, but they're not nearly enough. And this is code red. It's a planetary emergency. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about your fantastic new book, Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis now momentarily. But I guess I'm just curious, like I always look at these international summits of this kind and I'm sort of glad they're happening. The notion of having an event that focuses the world's attention on a problem this big and that brings relevant actors from state actors, non-state actors, activists, business people, scientists, innovators, you know, all together in one place. I think like notionally, that sounds like a good idea to me, but I got to say, you know me well enough to know my, my intrinsic skepticism kicks in at some point and my bullshit meter goes off and I kind of look at it and think, oh, great, there's Leo DiCaprio going to a cocktail party and there's, you know, Emmanuel Macron. And, you know, I know the press trivializes everything, but I do wonder, you know, everybody gets together, they make some pledges. Does anything tangible actually happen at these events? And I'm always glad to see someone like you there who's like in the business of action. You know, you're funding companies, you're trying to make stuff happen. People from the private sector, whatever you think of them, they have various things that are sometimes problematic, but they also like to do stuff, right? Do you walk out of a meeting like that thinking, I know you just said it was progress. If the pledges are met, do you walk out feeling energized and like, man, the world's on track here. Maybe we haven't gotten far enough, but the world's like ready to roll. Or do you walk out going, man, that was a lot of yakety yak. I'm in the Greta camp. I think it was a lot of yakety yak. And I think the governmental sector and our policies are lagging well behind the progress that I see coming from innovators, from impassioned youth, from investors, from business leaders. So this is a bigger deal than mobilizing for World War II, John. I know you're a student of history, so you go back to that period of time. For four years, we shut down, or the West anyway, shut down our manufacturing of automobiles and appliances and turn those factories over to making 268,000 aircraft, you know, 20,000 battleships. And it's because of that that we won World War II. Now, the pledges that were made at COP are not insignificant. More than 100 countries pledged to cut emissions of methane, a really potent heat-trapping gas, by 30% by 2030. But China, Russia, and India have yet to join that group. And I'm right, China, Russia, and India, they produce a lot of... They produce a lot of a lot of carbon. I think I've been to all three of those places. I think they produce a lot of carbon. Those are pretty big actors, pretty big problems, right? They are. The all-time alpha emitter is the United States, yeah. but the largest today is China, and yeah. by a factor of two. And by some accounts, they don't even have a good handle on what their methane emissions are. Just to keep on this theme for a moment, yeah. the leaders of nations that account for 85% of our forests which absorb a third of all carbon emissions, agreed to halt and reverse deforestation by the end of the decade. By this, my important milestone here is 2030. 
But Indonesia is already disputing the deadline, and Brazil is racing to chop down as many trees as possible before the deadline. They cleared an area the size of Chicago in September alone. So we're not well to get to where we need to go, which is a 50 or 55% reduction in emissions by 2030. John, we have to cut emissions every year between now and then by 8%. We haven't we haven't cut emissions in the, in the history of the planet by eight percent, right? Per right. year, yeah, uh, yeah. That's in a growing planet, right? That's why it seems like I mean, look, I mean, I don't want to like cut to the ch- I don't want to leapfrog over because I mean, we're going to talk about your book and your plan because I'm impressed with it and it's getting some interesting notice from people who talk about how practical and concrete and rigorous it is. But just staying in this moment here a little bit of COP. I mean, you were over there. I saw. You did some events. You were making these points. You're basically saying, look, this is a huge economic opportunity. It's a huge planetary imperative. We must do X, Y, and Z, the things you just laid out. I don't want to repeat you, but like this is the scale of the problem. And it just seems to me like these pledges are important, but even if we meet these pledges, we fall way short. And there's a reasonably good chance we're not going to meet these pledges. I mean, I don't understand how you maintain any optimism about this in the face of that, because all those things are true. It's like, you know, if we made every pledge good, we'd still fall way short. And I'm not really sure that we're going to make any of these pledges good because a lot of the key actors aren't even involved in the pledges. And the ones who are making the pledges are already backing away. I don't know, man. That sounds like a pretty bad scene to me. Well, so what I saw in Glasgow was a lot of what I call coptimism and countries that are pledging and committed. they, they, They can only pledge what their people will push them to do. Right. And so to be practical about this, we've got to have a plan that's more than technology. We've got to figure out how we're going to win the politics to get the right policies and how we're going to take these growing movements, and I'm counting Greta, but not Greta alone, and turn those into action. Right. And that's what the book is about. We really need innovation to drop the cost of clean technologies, and we've got to invest like our lives depend on it because they do. So you mentioned Greta a couple of times. I just want to play for the sake of our audience. Here's what Greta Thunberg, who's been in and around COP26 from before it, through it. And now this is the most recent piece of sound that we found of her just a couple of days ago. Here's her verdict on COP26. Let's listen to Greta Thunberg. It is not a secret that COP26 is a failure. The COP has turned into a PR event where leaders are giving beautiful speeches and announcing fancy commitments and targets. While behind the curtains, the governments of the global north countries are still refusing to take any drastic climate action. This is no longer a climate conference. This is now a global north greenwash festival. A two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. That's uh, one of her trademark phrases there, the blah, blah, blah at the end. Is there anything that she said, though, that you disagree with? I mean, you couldn't hardly be any more different than Greta Thunberg, you know, from your generationally, temperamentally, background, everything else, right? But is there anything she said there you disagree with, fundamentally? No, but I think the question is what to do. And, And that's where this plan... The part of the plan that I love the most is the one called turning movements into action. Yeah. And we've got eight key results, the top one of which is to make climate a top two voting issue in the top 20 emitting countries, and to do that by 2025. And you and I, as disciples of Andy Grove, who 
invented this key results, objective yeah. key results system, will, I think, appreciate the specificity, the fact that it's time-bound and it's measurable. We can have all the demonstrations we want, but if we don't make this a top voting issue, a top popular issue in the countries that matter, it's going to be a lot harder to solve the problem. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one more thing. I'm going to play one more piece of sound, and then we're going to lay out the plan, the door plan. Okay. That's what we're going to do next. But I want to play one more piece of sound because it's one of these strange bedfellows moments where, you know, I'm not a young woman for sure. And I'm not a climate activist, although I understand, I think that the problem is very significant, but I find myself listening to Greta Thunberg and thinking she's right. Here's someone I almost never agree with about anything under any circumstances. Let's listen to Mitch McConnell talk about COP26. The event was billed as a serious meeting of world leaders committed to taking action on climate policy. More than a thousand VIPs arrived in a parade of no fewer than 400 private jets, 400 private jets, a mode of transportation that some climate activists say is up to 14 times more polluting than commercial aviation. Hypocrisy was on full display at that meeting. As I said, you, you would have to search for a long time to find anything where I've ever agreed with Mitch McConnell. It'd be a very long search. You could probably search the rest of your life and not find that. But I will say in this instance, and I obviously this criticism of his is offered in horrible bad faith because he doesn't give a flying fuck about the climate crisis. But, you know, it's one of the other things about this COP26 thing, the spectacle of Hollywood celebrities, rich business people, industrialists, some global leaders flying in on their private jets to Glasgow. I mean, it's hard to fight off the accusation of hypocrisy in that case. And it seems like it gives a lot of bad faith critics some ammunition to dismiss the efforts of COP26 when people fly in on their jets. John, you've known me a long time. You know I'm data-driven. All aviation, commercial and private, accounts for 2% of emissions. And so we don't have time to get distracted by bright, shiny objects here. We've got to, as I say, go for the gigatons, the large emitting nations, the large sources of emissions, and act with speed and with scale. As to Greta, I think you know the way I came to this is with my own personal Greta 16 years ago, and that was yeah. Mary Dorr, who, after she and I and some friends saw Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, gathered for dinner. And we went round the table and I asked people what they thought. Some of my Republicans' friends at that time said, well, the planet's getting warmer, but I'm not sure it's man-made. You remember that was in doubt at that time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And of course, now there's no disagreement. But when it came to Mary, she turned to me and she said, I'm scared and I'm angry. Dad, your generation created this problem. You better fix it. And that sent me and my partner. I didn't know what to say. It sent us on a journey to try to understand and do something about this problem. And we worked at it. We learned lots, but we largely had no impact. And so now we're almost out of time. We're fast running out of time. So you say focus on the gigatons, right? So this takes us into speed and scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis now. And the book's kind of broken into two parts, right? You lay out a plan for Big solutions, right. sort of what do we need to do to solve the climate crisis to get to the right. kind of numbers and goals that you lay out just now? And then kind of the plan for how to actually get there. Like, what do we need to do? And then how do we act on that? What's the strategy for getting it done? And I, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do your elevator pitch. Basically, the book is getting good coverage. And the thing that distinguishes the coverage of the book, I've noted in its reviews, the early reviews, the book's actually published on Tuesday, the 9th of November. So you'll be able to get this book 
anywhere you get your books, so to speak, on the day this show comes out. But it's exciting, right? So the book's going to come out. It's going to get more reviews. But the reviews right now basically say whether it's Fareed Zachariah writing about it in the Washington Post or Kirkus, everybody focuses on the practicality of it. It's practical. It's rigorous. Here's John Doerr laying out what has to happen and how to get there. So tell us what that is in your normally concise, bullet pointy, very clear way. There's broad agreement, John, that what we need to do, the mother of all objectives, is to lower emissions, carbon emissions, from 59 gigatons per year right now to zero by 2050. 59 to net zero by 2050. And the big six areas for solutions, John, are to electrify transportation, which means we're going to power our vehicles with electricity instead of with gas and oil and diesel. The second is we're going to decarbonize the grid, switching to wind and solar, safe nuclear. The third big area is to fix our food systems. And that's to reduce, not eliminate, but reduce the amount of beef and dairy we consume and how we grow those crops and reduce food waste, which globally is 30% of the food we produce. To protect nature, that's our oceans and our forests, to stop deforestation. The fifth big area is to clean up industry, especially how we make cement and steel. And then the sixth and hardest of all these, John, because we won't be able to cut all the carbon emissions, is to find means, both mechanical and natural, to get carbon back out of the atmosphere after it's been emitted. I want to unpack that a little bit because you made a point at the end about saying how the hardest one was the last one, right? Which is removing the carbon. Of the six of those things that you think we need to do, which of those are we closest to being on track to do at the speed and scale that you identify? Which are those like where you're like, okay, we're kind of making progress on and maybe close to what we need to make way? And which are the ones where we're really stalled and stuck and we're going to need a big giant push to get anywhere close? Well, we're making the most progress on number two, which is decarbonizing the grid. And the grid is 24 gigatons of carbon emissions every year globally. And our plan will reduce those 24 to three gigatons. Each of these big objectives, John, is supported by three to five key results. And I'll just read you the first key result for decarbonizing the grid. It's that 50% of the world's electricity will come from zero emission sources by 2025. Okay. And 90% by 2035. Where we stand today is 38%. (laughs) And if we achieve that objective, we'll take 16 of our 59 gigatons out of the system. That's pretty good. If you can get there, that's all right. Okay. And which is besides the sixth objective, the removal of carbon, what's the next hardest? And why is that hard? I think they're equally hard. Yeah. Let me pick cleaning up industry, for example. Yeah. We have to reduce the carbon intensity of cement by 25% by 2030 and 90% by 2040. And the current ways that we make cement, the process itself emits as much carbon as the cement that's created. So (laughs) this is what we call a wicked problem. It's going to be hard to clean up industry, steel and cement. Yes, The world needs steel and cement. One other sector that's going to be difficult is aviation. We're going to need to invent new fuels that will work with today's engines. Some people call them synthetic fuels, low-carbon fuels. 
to clean up those sectors of the economy. How does this all get done? How do you implement these changes against you know all of the obstacles? You've got entrenched industries, you've got fossil fuel interests that fight these changes, you've got huge regulatory and bureaucratic hurdles, you've got governments that are just, you know, almost inevitably too slow, too dumb, too fat, too fucked up. You talk about this notion of accelerance in your book, and I'd love you to explain what some of those are. I think you say there are four major ones, right? Four big accelerants. Yeah. The first is to win the policy. And as you and I know, you don't win the policy if you don't win the politics. Right. So win the politics and the policy. The second is to turn movements, broadly defined movements, into action, concrete, measurable actions. The third is to innovate. And there's some who will argue that we have all the technology we need to solve these problems today. And they're not right. We have some really hard technical problems that we need to solve and deploy. So the way I say this in the book, we need the now. We need to deploy much more of what we've got right now. And we also need the new. And then finally, we've got to invest in five areas, government, subsidies and support for clean energy, government, primarily research and development, venture capital, project financing, and philanthropic investing. First of all, as I look at that, you talk about politics and policy, and you talk about investments at the end here, right? You know, a lot of the innovation is going to come from the private sector. We know that. The question is, how do we make that happen? So then the question is, where's the money going to come from? As you think about what's the scale of the investment that's necessary over the time frame, how much do you think needs to get invested in order to get the innovation you know, if we could play God and we were in charge of the policy and politics, you and me sitting in a room, like we'd say, this is how much money we need in total, private, public, and how much of that's government money and how much of that's private money. The estimates are that the clean energy transformation, all elements of it for the economy, for the planet, will yeah. cost something like $4 trillion a year for 20 <laughs> years. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you laugh. I do. I've been covering the Build Back Better and infrastructure bill negotiations for the last couple of months. And those numbers are, you know, I mean, we have. The, I know it's not all government money. I know it's not all the U.S., but those are large numbers, John. I'm, I know you're aware. Those are numbers that start with a T. Trillions are like, you know, I know you're comfortable with B's and billions. Very, you've been swimming around in those numbers for a long time. But the T word is like a lot. You and I in prior lives talked about B's and T's. But yeah. this number, this $4 trillion per year estimate, pales in comparison to what we spend on carbon emissions today. Yep. And, and I'm talking the amount we pay on fossil fuels, on exploration of fossil fuels, the energy infrastructure, all automobiles, the social cost of carbon is estimated to be $10 trillion a year. That's one out of five deaths premature or attributed to carbon pollution. The, the simple equation is it's now cheaper to save the planet than it is to ruin it. And the world's coming to this point of view. Take the flooding and hurricanes in this year alone. Already, and the year's not over, China, it's estimated, has $23 billion of flood damage. Right. Europe, $30 billion of flood damage. Hurricane Ida, on yeah. its own, $94 billion of, of direct costs, measurable damage. How much more suffering does this planet have to endure before we realize the smart thing to do is to move to a clean energy economy. 
Well, it's a very good question. And you know, you said a second ago, the world is coming to this view that it's cheaper to save the planet than to destroy it. And again, my bullshit detector goes off because as we just pointed out, China, Russia didn't show up at COP26. Is the world really coming to that point of view? There are definitely people in the world coming to that point of view, but is the world coming to that point of view? It's not clear. And I think the challenging thing for people like you who have a plan where you say win politics and win policy, right? You know, what that means is win politics and policy on a global unified basis. This is a global problem, right? This isn't a problem America can solve. America has a big part in solving this, but it's not a problem America can solve. So it's basically like you need unified global action on this massive scale to adopt the policies you're for and then put them into action on the time scale, speed and scale. John, I know that's the title of your book. I'll say it again for those out there thinking about buying this book, speed and scale. John says we need fast and we need a big. That's what speed and scale means, right? So you need big and fast globally on the right policies with all that money. And I just don't look around and see like a whole lot of that kind of global unanimity, focus, determination, agency on a global scale. Do you? It's a global problem. It's a multinational problem. It's a problem of states. It's a problem of localities. It's a problem yeah. of communities. And we have got to master winning the politics and the policies at each of those levels. And so I'll pick some key results. Under politics and policy, each country needs to enact a national commitment to reach net zero by 2050 and get halfway there by 2030. Right. Where do the big emitters stand right now? Yeah. China has said they'll get to net zero by 2060, and they will not be shamed or pressured by the rest of the world into shifting that position. Right. But they care a lot about what their standing is. India at this COP conference said, we'll commit to net zero by 2070. Well, their emissions per person and their economy and their yeah. responsibility for the problem that we have, 600 million people in India don't have access, reliable access to electricity. So you, you have to craft a global solution. We've only got one atmosphere that we're dumping this 59 gigatons into right. every year to deal with the politics and policy levers that you have. So I totally agree with that. But, you know, with all due respect to your book, which I agree with the assessments of it where people say this is a concrete, tangible, empirical, rigorous, practical set of like, let's lay it out in a logical way. Very John Doerr, like very logical, right? Here it is. Here's what has to happen. Here's the way to make it happen. But who's going to run this? Who's going to run this railroad, buddy? Like to get this giant challenge that requires huge investments and huge moving in unison on a global basis. Like, how does that happen? What's the agency for that? I don't mean the agency as in a government agency. I mean, who's the person who leads that and is in a position to pull everyone together and make it all happen? You know, Greta Thunberg's, you know, a great movement person. I, I get it. I just don't understand how it happens. Look, in 2018, Greta Thunberg was a single teenager skipping school on Friday to make a point. Yep. By the end of 2019, she organized, catalyzed, galvanized, a million demonstrators yeah. around the world in a hundred cities, young people primarily. And she changed climate crisis to be a top two voting issue in Europe. She didn't change it in the US, but she did it in Europe. So who's the agency? We need key results and strategies that are attuned. You don't demonstrate in China to get the change that you want. Right. You provide technical assistance in a way yeah. We have to tailor and measure and track these key results by country, by venue. You've got to know where the decisions are being made. In some right. cases, 
the crucial decisions are made by unelected officials who run public utility commissions. Does the U.S. have to lead this? There, there have been some examples in our history, I mean, the West's history, where, you know, you pointed out World War II earlier, where there was multinational coordinated action to repel the threat of fascism overwhelming the globe. That happened. You know, there have been some examples of things like that. The UN has done a few things that looked sort of like this. But I'm trying to think of what the precedent is where you've been able to move on a global scale and even on, on a national scale without some person who's the kind of the tip of the spear, or at least some country that's the tip of the spear that's really makes this their job one and makes it their highest priority and spends all their time treating this like it's the existential crisis that you believe it is. I just don't like, who is that? Is that Joe Biden? Well, look, I'm, I'm going to defer that question for just a moment. I'll return to it because you asked, does the US need to lead or not? And absolutely it does. And we have to, for a number of reasons, we're the largest historic emitter. We're the center of innovation. Now, we draw on minds and talent from all around the world. But if the U.S. doesn't innovate against the hard technical problems, we're way less likely to succeed. I think the U.S. has a social obligation to lead. We must first show the world that this can be done. And then we've got a responsibility to drive the costs down so that the solutions are affordable to others. And there is an element of social justice, which is both the moral thing to do and the pragmatic thing to do. And that's to say that we need to build large, durable coalitions in every country to advocate for this. And uh, we're probably witnessing it as we record this very program, that getting the infrastructure bill through relied vitally on the Black Caucus to build a broader base of support than you might otherwise anticipate. But you're, you're the expert in, in politics. I am. Uh, you're a piker. You're a mere dilettante when it comes to politics. History. At best. <laughs> yes, yes. I won't point out the number of times that the former president of the United States stayed in your house in California. You seem to know a little about politics. We won't talk about that. That'll be a whole digression. Well, I'm writing a whole series of books called Barack Obama Comes to Woodside. Um, listen, uh, we're going to take a quick break and pay the bills here. My friend John Doerr has a great new book. Uh, the book is called Speed and Scale. And we're going to talk more about the climate crisis a little later, but first we're going to take a little trip down memory lane with John to his pre-climate activist days and changing the world in Silicon Valley on other fronts. But I will say when we come back around to talk about the climate crisis, I do think one of the things that's most encouraging is the fact that, you know, this is one of the rare issues where when you talk to young people, they're like fired up and ready to go. And they say, you know, this is the only thing that matters. And having young people energized and focused, it seems to me another part of the key to how to get this done. The, the Greta Thunberg thing, I think is right in the sense that it's not going to come from the top down. It's got to come from the top down and the bottom up. And the bottom up is being led by, is going to be led by young people and young people you run into them every day and give a shit about politics about almost anything, but they really think the climate matters. They really care about their planet and their yeah. future. It's not just young people, though. I'm seeing really impressive movement in the private sector, John, and we can talk yeah. about that after you've done the private business. Yes, the private sector is knocking at the door right now. So we're going to play an ad. We're going to come back on the other side and talk a little more to my friend John Doerr here on Hell and High Water. We have done a lot of exciting things at The Recount since we started this company a couple of years ago, but I have rarely been as excited about anything as I am about a brand new podcast that's joining The Recount Podcast Network. This is a podcast co-hosted by two amazing journalists. I'm talking about Elsie Granderson and Will Leach. 
And the name of the show is The Long Game with LZ and Leach. I was like, you know, we got to get into sports at the recap. And the way I want to get into sports is by talking about the way that sports intersects with gender and race and class and politics and economics and the business element of it and the pop cultural element of it. Like sports is like fucking everything in America, right? Sports connects to everything in our lives. And when I thought about who would be the best people to host it, I was like, Elsie Granderson and Will Leach. Elsie is like a guy I've wanted to have on my team for a long time. I'm so psyched he's here. Will has been on other teams I've coached in the past, and Will is always like one of my favorite people to have. So we got two five-tool players exploring all the stuff that makes sports more than sports. And that's what's going to make this show an absolute must-listen. The show, again, is called The Long Game with Elsie and Leach. It's already up and running, and it has new episodes every Wednesday here for the recap. And we are back for part two of this episode of Hell and High Water with the one and only Louis John Dor, L. John Dor, the pride of Chaminade, the spirit of St. Louis. No one knows the backstory, but you know, if you're a Chaminade man, as John and I both are different Chaminades, but if you're a Chaminade man, you recognize a Chaminade man walking down the street. You say, that's a Chaminade man right there. Here's a guy who's not a Chaminade man, but a man who both of us admire a lot, whose name has come up a couple of time so far already in this podcast and a legendary figure in Silicon Valley and someone whose teachings John has deeply absorbed in both this book, Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis and his previous book, Measure What Matters. So let's listen to a, I love finding old tape. Let's listen to Andy Grove, former CEO of Intel, talking about uh, a principle that is at the core of the door approach, objectives and key results, OKRs. Here comes Andy Grove from 1978. The objective is the direction. We want to dominate the mid-range microcomputer component business. That's an objective. You know, if that's where we want to go. Key results for this quarter, uh, win 10 new designs for the 8085, one key result. It's a milestone. At the end, you can look and without any arguments, say, did I do that or did I not do it? Yes, no. Simple, no judgments in it. Now, did we dominate the mid-range microcomputer business? Then, you know, that's for us to argue in the years to come. But over the next quarter, we'll know whether we've won 10 new designs or not. Andy Grove, man. That's Andy Grove. I love him. Yeah, we miss that guy, right? That's the truth. Yes, no, very simple. Done, not done. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> that's like maybe the most no bullshit person I've ever met. Like truly like like a man with a fundamental allergy and antipathy to bullshit and a guy who built one of the great companies in the history of America at Intel and became famous for another saying of his, only the paranoid survive. John tries to live a different life. You're not a paranoid man, right? Paranoia is not your thing. Paranoia is a disease state. <laughs> I used to argue with Andy over this and I prefer passion to paranoia. Yeah. You probably have interviewed Andy Grove more than any person on the planet, and I would love one day to listen to those tapes or get those transcripts. I'm waiting to put them in the Smithsonian, John. That's like going to be, there's going to come a moment. Somebody's going to come to me like the university, like Stanford's going to come to me and offer me like $30 million for those tapes. And I'm going to say, yes, sir, here they are. And then you'll get to hear them. In Silicon Valley, everything's got a price. What was your impression of Andy Grove? I mean, I value no bullshit more than I value almost anything else. And I thought Andy was always totally no bullshit. And he was a, you know, a delight 
to interview always because he was so clear-eyed about himself, about his weaknesses, about his strengths, about the company's weaknesses and strengths. There was no ever no revisionist history with Andy. He was always just like very, very honest and brutal and 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 also could be really arrogant because he knew what his strengths were and they were many. So it was like the combination of those two things, though, like you can always stomach someone's arrogance better when they're also brutally self-critical. And that's like was Andy's thing. He was just very, very clear-eyed about everything. And then as you also know, he had like a really soft, beautiful, humane heart. And so the combination of those things made him very powerful. But I wanted to ask you about it because, you know, you're, as I suggested before, St. Louis native, you know, go to Rice University, get your degree, you're looking like an engineer. No one had like venture capitalist, financier slapped him on John Doerr's forehead. And you showed up in Silicon Valley, went to work at Intel. Just explain to me and to our listeners how, you know, electrical engineer, technical guy, product guy, how does a guy like that end up at one of the great technical companies in the world, Intel, and then somehow leave and go off and become a VC? Well, it's important to picture that time. It was in the mid-70s, really, when Intel invented the microprocessor and the 8-bit microprocessor around 1980. Silicon Valley then was orchards. It, it wasn't developed in the way that it is today. and I had the good fortune to have a loving father who was a role model and himself an engineer, Lou Dorr, and importantly, an entrepreneur who started companies with his friends. And I wanted to be like my dad, who I admired. So I came to Silicon Valley one summer with uh, no job, no place to live, and no girlfriend. In fact, it was worse than that. My girlfriend was avoiding me. And she had, it turns out, unbeknownst to me, gotten a summer internship at Intel. And I began cold calling all kinds of employers to figure out how I'd pay for my $55 a month garage apartment. I got an interview and ultimately a job at Intel. And to my surprise and to Ann Holland Doerr's dismay, I ended up down the hall from her. And the rest is history. <laughs> two daughters later. Two daughters, 43 years of marriage later, we're still in love. But, but look, there's a question though about this, right? You admire Andy Grove enormously. Like you've known every major important person really who's mattered at a high level in Silicon Valley ever, basically. I mean, maybe not Hewlett and Packard, but like anybody from the 70s on, right? Andy's as much of an influence on you as anybody you've ever interacted with, worked with, funded, been partnered with anything, right? You see it in the books, as I pointed out. It's like you've written a whole book about Andy's management method, and then you use that method as the core of speed and scale. The guy influenced you in a core, profound, fundamental way. And Intel was the most exciting company in Silicon Valley at the time. You know, if you were an engineer, they were inventing the microprocessor, which is going to change the world. So like, why only five years there? Like you could have imagined John Doerr staying there and going on to become, you know, the next CEO of Intel. Well, I wanted with friends to start a company that would change the world. And I went to Andy and I told him I was going to leave Intel to work at Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Byers. It sounded to me like a law firm. I barely knew what they were going to do. But I made them promise me that if I joined, they would back me and my friends in a new company. And they delivered on that promise. In fact, they had a track record to do in that. They'd sponsored a young partner who wrote the business plan for Genentech, created the whole biotechnology industry and so on and so forth. But I really wasn't interested in venture capital. I was interested in starting companies and I heard venture capital had something to do with that. 
My guess is when you told that Danny Grove, he thought that was a really bad idea. Oh, yeah, I should tell you this. In fact, he had this amazing ability to look into your eyes, reach into your chest, pull your heart out, hold it in his hands. And he said to me, Door, venture capital, wouldn't you rather be general manager of Intel's software business? Well, Intel's software business was imaginary. They had no software business. <laughs> well, so was the company you were going to go start at Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Byers. So, like, you know, they're kind of on level footing at that point. It, it was. But the zinger was when Grove said, venture capital, that's like being in real estate. Don't you want to be a real general manager? Oh, real estate. That's not good. Hmm. Yeah. But you still went and did it. I still went and did it. And it worked out pretty well in the end. I mean, I think about your career which we could spend almost an infinite amount of time talking about, we're not going to, you know, there's not that many people who succeeded in venture capital in multiple waves of the industry, right? So it's like you had that moment in the 80s where you're working with the guys at Sun Microsystems and you're working with the guys at Compaq and Intuit, you know, these kind of companies, these 80s companies. And then the 90s come along and you're like even more so in the internet wave with Netscape and Amazon and Google. I mean, an incredible run as an investor and a board member on a lot of those companies, right? All of that kind of happening. And now you're kind of pushing the edge on clean tech, right? I mean, look, you've made more money than anybody could ever spend. And most people in your business, as you know, when they achieve enormous success like that, we're like, for a lot of venture capitalists, like one Sun Microsystems are done, you know, let alone a Sun Microsystems and a Google and an Amazon.com, you know, what is it that has kept you wanting through decade after decade and technology wave after technology wave? And now, as I said, into the clean tech space, the green tech space, like what's kept you wanting to keep doing this as opposed to, you know, being Larry Ellison and buying a like Hawaiian island and like going and eating a pineapple all day long. I mean, you know, those are some good pineapples on the night, but like he's essentially just hanging out. And that's what a lot of people do in your business, but not you. What a generous and flattering question, John. You've known me for decades. I'll just say I really love people and I like being useful. I w was raised in a middle-class, mid-American family with great role models in my mom and my dad. I like solving big problems. This is the mother of all problems, this, this climate crisis. I want to ask you about three people. And again, I made a comment a second ago. We talked about Andy Grove, but I think you know, for a general audience, these are I'm going to name three people who you've had interesting relationships with in the technology world. And that, well, you've had a lot of interesting relationships, but I've named three people that a lot of people know who they are. And I want to hear what you have to say about them, what you've learned from them over the course of this career that you've had. And at least one of them leads us directly back to the climate crisis. But the first one I want to ask you about is Steve Jobs, someone who, you know, easily the most famous person, except for maybe Bill Gates, but I would say more than Bill Gates, the most famous person in the history of the technology business and someone who I know you became pretty close to late in his life. And I'm curious about like both business innovation and life lessons. Like you were never in business really with Apple in the direct way. You weren't part of that culture from the outset, but you and Steve forged a bond toward the end. And I'm curious what you took away from that relationship, what you learned from it that informs how you live and how you work now. So... I never really wanted anything from Steve Jobs. I wasn't asking him for anything. We had daughters about the same age and honestly became friends. We'd walk around the neighborhood, talk about problems in the world, opportunities in the world. Steve dreamed big and he combined that with an Andy Grove-like intensity that allowed him to say no to thousands of plausible but 
incorrect ideas. I remember I tried to persuade him that Apple ought to build a car. <laughs> and he, he was toying with the idea, but he said no. He had bold ideas for the energy crisis, that he felt the U.S. and Mexico ought to merge, that we ought to generate clean electricity in Colorado or Utah and have a smart grid, which would pipe that all around the nation. More than anything else, Steve loved his family, which most people didn't get to see, and he loved his company. And there wasn't room for much else in his life, but where did he do that to perfection? So the second person on my list is maybe the anti-Steve Jobs, right? Which is Bill Gates, the two of them huge figures. As I said a second ago, you could argue maybe Bill Gates is, you know, he's on the Mount Rushmore of both technology and philanthropy, right? Right. And yet, you know, for years they were antagonists. They, they, you know, were the the alpha and the omega, right? They fought constantly. They warred for market share. They warred for public image. They warred, you know, in the government battles over Microsoft and antitrust. And in terms of style, temperament, intellectual outlook, they couldn't have been more different, right? And, you know, for a long time, you were a Valley person, a Silicon Valley person. Silicon Valley people didn't really like Bill Gates very much. They thought Microsoft was the Borg and was trying to kill. They, Microsoft did try to kill Netscape, one of the companies you helped get going. And, you know, the government tried to break him up. And you were, like a lot of people in Silicon Valley, like cheerleading for that for a little while. And now you and Bill are big friends. And that's really what I want to get to, which is, you know, Bill's doing a bunch of stuff in clean energy. He's a big endorser of the book. I'll say again, Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis by John Doerr. Bill Gates is touting John Doerr. John Doerr is touting Bill Gates. I really want to understand the transformation of that relationship because it's changed over time. And I'm curious how that happened and why. Well, I, I never set out to rival or even imagine that I would rival Bill Gates. There were a bunch of innovative companies and entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, and they found themselves benefiting from and competing with Microsoft, in some cases being crushed by Microsoft's yeah. extraordinary execution. And market power. And market power. But along the way, Microsoft missed some big opportunities. Bill would be the first to confess. Uh, the smartphone passed them by. The internet, they almost miss that. And today, Microsoft's the most valuable company in the world. So there you have it. My admiration for Bill Gates is extraordinary. He built an amazing technology company with a vision that he'd put a computer on every desktop. He then replanted himself to deal with one of the planet's awesome crises, inequities, and that's to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to live a healthy life. And he's the largest philanthropist ever on the planet today yeah. in doing enormous good. My heart leapt for joy. I think it was four or five years ago when Bill gave a talk on climate at TED and declared he was going to make the climate crisis a top personal priority. And his reasoning for that was climate amplifies inequities. Climate is fundamental to health and to prosperity. And so he called one day. He'd been an investor in Kleiner funds. He'd been particularly interested in our climate investing. And he yeah. said, John, I'm thinking of, of putting together a new kind of innovation fund. It began at the Paris COP, where Bill called on the world's governments to dramatically increase their investing in R&D for climate. And he correctly assumed that if he was going to be calling on governments to invest, 
they would be calling on him, the wealthiest person in the world, to invest. Yeah. And so both Bill made a multi-billion dollar commitment and raised funds and has an initiative called Breakthrough Energy, where he invited me to be on the board and to share the scar tissue and learnings. And he introduced a measure that I think is super important, John, called the green premium. And that's the additional cost of getting any good or service if it's carbon free. I mean, look, I, you know, you may recall, I wrote a book about the Microsoft antitrust trial. And I, and I know for a fact, if you went back 20 years ago to 1999, 2000, and you had Bill Gates on sodium pentothal, he would have said, John Doerr's trying to break up my company and kill my business. How does that go away where a feeling of we are not friends, we are rivals, we are enemies. How does that go from that 20 years ago to, is it just the climate crisis so important that you could put it all aside? Well, you're, you're right that we were the fiercest of competitors in, in that era. We battled on every front, but competitors can also be colleagues and be allies. And uh, there was nothing personal about Bill's drive to be the most innovative technology company in the world or, or my desire to help entrepreneurs succeed in achieving that, that very same goal. If not the world, I am very thankful that Bill Gates is doing what he's doing every day. He doesn't need to fight for a habitable planet, and he is. You know, I, I said that I, I wanted to talk about three people who are important big figures in the world and, and big figures in your life, and, and there's one more left on that list. Someone I know you've been very close to for at least the last 20, 25 years, and that would be former vice president and now really a lot of ways the global ambassador for the cause of fighting climate change, Al Gore. But we got to take an ad break here uh, and play some commercials because um, like you, we are capitalists here at Hell and High Water. So we're going to go pay the rent through the form of some advertisements. And then we'll come back and bring this conversation back to where it started, the main focus of our episode today, which of course is the climate crisis and the politics and business of it all. So we'll see on the other side of the break, John Doerr, author of Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis now on Hell and High Water. And we are back for the third and final part of Hell and High Water with my friend John Doerr. John, I said I wanted to come back to the climate crisis, and I think a good place to start here is really where your interest, I'd say more than interest, your current passion and even obsession started with climate change, and that is with your friend Al Gore. You mentioned earlier how your daughter Mary sort of propelled you into this fight after all of you got an early look at An Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore's famed award-winning documentary from 2006. And I wanted to play a little bit of that here and then ask you about how it affected you on the other side. So let's take a listen. You remember that home movie of the Earth spinning in space? You see that pale blue dot? That's us. Everything that has ever happened in all of human history has happened on that pixel. All the triumphs and all the tragedies, all the wars, all the famines, all the major advances, it's our only home. And that is what is at stake, our ability to live on planet Earth, to have a future as a civilization. 
So, you know, there's like not a lot of people who would have said before an inconvenient truth. No one really said people that had various reasons to admire Al Gore. Other people had reasons to hate him. But nobody really called him a poet, right? It wasn't like Al Gore was seen as an inspirational figure. And then that movie came out and did as much as I think anything in popular culture to ignite what we now see around the climate crisis globally. And it had this effect on you, had this effect on your daughter, had this effect on a lot of people where they watched it and said, fuck, man, he nailed it, right? And I'm curious about for you at that moment, you know, 30 years in venture capital, roughly, right? Maybe 25, a lot of success, a lot of big scores, a lot of industry transforming companies. You were interested in politics, but here comes this former vice president, failed presidential nominee, making a movie about climate change, and it changes your life, right? Beyond the Mary Dore story, which I get, and it's a good story to tell and it's illustrative. Like, what is it that gets, I mean, I never heard you talk about the climate crisis in 1997, 1998, 1999. All of a sudden this movie hits you. And I just wanted to just talk about your thought process of what it is that hit you so hard in this movie that you really have spent the last 15 years doing mostly this. So Al Gore is evangelical and inspirational and motivational on this crisis. I often think what would have happened if the Supreme Court had not ruled five to four in a decision that was fenced off to not establish a precedent that we continue counting the votes in Florida in 2000. Don't let anybody ever tell you that your vote doesn't count. 537 votes, I think was the margin of votes in that county. And we'd have been two decades ahead and have only to reduce our emissions by 20% a decade instead of the 55% that we've got to achieve now to avert catastrophic and irreversible climate crisis. So Al Gore and I started working in the Clinton administration, interestingly on education issues, trying to establish national standards for reading and math, voluntarily adopted state by state, and we failed. The politics handed us a setback. But I, I was incredibly struck by his passion, his morality, his love of technology and innovation. Remember, he joined Clinton to reinvent government, his bold ambitions. Yeah. And he recruited me to the cause. I talked to Al every week now for half an hour to advance my thinking and education and action with him on Mary and Greta and the agenda of all the other young people on this planet. You know, Mary's right. My generation created this problem and we're not going to fix it. Together with Mary and Greta and Al, maybe we can. If I were a cynical man, a snarky journalist, I would say, half an hour without Gore Week, that would be some good time to get a little nap in. Oh, no, no, no. I said if I were snarky, John, you know I'm not snarky. That's not my not my want. He's a very funny man. I know that. You know I know that. You know I know Well, that. for the record, <laughs> I'm moved by what Obama said about the climate crisis. He said, mm -hmm. we're the first generation to feel the effect of climate change and the last generation who can do something about it. Yeah, well, Barack Obama often has a uh, succinct and eloquent way of putting things, and there's some hope in that, but there's also something pretty daunting about it, especially when you think about 
the politics that you encounter. And, you know, the politics here are global politics. They're super complicated. You're talking about the politics of the rich world and the poor world. You're talking about the politics of the North and the South, the politics of the East and the West, all of them. I don't know a country that I've visited in my life, and I've visited a few that are kind of like sort of fucked up at the political level in terms of getting big things done fast, which is what speed and scale is all about. And, you know, look, you have been very actively engaged with the U.S. political system in a way that a lot of people in Silicon Valley never were for a long, long, long time. You sort of were a leading figure in saying, hey, you know what? Silicon Valley is no longer an infant. It's now an adult industry. It's the heart of the new economy, and we have to engage with Washington. So you've been doing that for a while. But, you know, look, in the process, you've had some good experiences, and you've also had some not great experiences with our government and have been frustrated by it and some of the people in it. To wit, I want to play some sound from a gentleman by the name of Steve Scalise. Some of the listeners of this program will be familiar with Steve Scalise. He is, of course, a Republican congressman from Louisiana who is in the Republican leadership in the House. He's the House minority whip. That makes him number two to Kevin McCarthy. So kind of an important guy in the GOP. Here is Steve Scalise just last week talking about his conceptions of what climate change is in this year. Right now, this is last week, 2021. Let's listen to Steve Scalise talking about what he thinks of the climate crisis. We had hurricanes a lot longer than we've had changes in carbon emissions. Carbon emissions have been around since before uh, man walked the earth. I mean, you've seen 10,000 years ago, you can look at the record, and we had warmer temperatures on the earth than we do today because it goes up and down. We've had freezing periods in the 1970s. They said it was going to be a new cooling period, and now it gets warmer, it gets colder. That's called Mother Nature. So I ask you, like, how do you deal with a fucking idiot like that? You've got a Republican Party that's likely to take back control of the House in 2022. Likely, not certain, but likely if historical trends hold and the president's approval rating continues to sag. We'll see. Likely take control of the Senate. There's no margin there. So Republicans take control of the Congress next year. And that guy, Steve Salinas, is like one of the most powerful people in the country. And I think I won't make you call him a fucking idiot because you're more politic than I am. But I think you would say that that's an ill-informed point of view about climate change, right? You'd agree with that? He's wrong. Yes, right. So how do you deal with that? You got a party full of people who believe that, John. Just in America. I'm not talking about India, China, Russia, Indonesia, the whole of the African subcontinent. We're talking about here in the United States, the most advanced country in the world. And that is what the Republican leadership thinks about climate change. How do you deal with that? You work on it on all fronts. You know that, unfortunately, the devastation that's occurring in the natural environment is now touching two-thirds of Americans. Forests, wildfires, floods, hurricanes of biblical proportion. That is putting the American people and voters on notice. Young Republicans on college campuses care deeply about this issue. And if you can't get your head around this as a planetary crisis, then you focus on the economic transition. The clean energy transition is coming and happening. And he cannot afford for his districts, his constituents, or his party to not be part of that opportunity. And I'll just say one other thing that you'll remember from the days of the internet era. At the start of that <laughs> boom, I ran around saying the internet had been underhyped and kicked up. Yes, you had. Yes, you did. People were like, they rolled their eyes. I'd say today that clean technologies have been underhyped. At least right. they're underappreciated. This is not in the book. They're underappreciated in terms of their planetary impact and economic opportunity. It ought to be the great value right. creation opportunity 
of the 21st century. You would also say that the internet was the largest legal creation of wealth in the history of the planet. Is that true also of clean tech? If the door, and I, I want to be really clear, I'm not suggesting that the plan you've laid out, that the purpose of it is making maximum profitability or wealth creation. That's not, I think, the purpose of it. I think this purpose is very clear, what you're trying to drive to do here, which is to solve the climate crisis. Nevertheless, we both acknowledge innovation, private sector, very important. And if we don't want to have governments having to foot the bill, the more we get private sector money into this race, the better off we are. And the way that private sector money in this race gets into this race is if people see a profit to be made for it. So is that parallel also there? Is clean tech potentially the next largest legal creation of wealth in the history of the planet? So far, the record is spotty, I would say. So far, the record is spotty, but I think it is the next great legal creation of wealth and more importantly, well-being. Larry Fink's on record as saying he thinks there'll be a thousand climate tech unicorns. Those would be new companies that are worth more than a billion dollars in short if order. If there are a thousand unicorns, are they still unicorns? I always thought the unicorn was a rare thing. Once I have a thousand, <laughs> it sounds more like a herd to me than a unit than a it's like a herd of rabbits or something. A thundering herd, perhaps. But Tesla, <laughs> Tesla is now the seventh most valuable company on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Elon Musk is the wealthiest person, yeah. I think, on the planet, holding a Twitter poll as to whether or not he ought to sell 10% of his equity position. And that is a tremendous, powerful planetary force for good. I assure you that the CEO of Volkswagen and General Motors have taken notice of the market value that Elon has amassed. I mean, we agree. There's a lot of money potentially to be made here. And, you know, that's, I think, another good place for us to turn back to your plan in the book. You know, I have to say, you lay out a whole bunch of objectives. How many objectives again? Six objectives, seven accelerants. For every one of these objectives, there's just a handful, three to five key results, Yeah, 55 of them in total. And if we achieve these 55 key results, John, yeah, we'll get to net zero. We'll go from 59 to zero by 2050. Uh -huh. That's what the plan is designed to do. If Andy Grove were with us, I think he'd be smiling. He would approve. Or, or horrified, but there are 55 of them. I think Andy would think that that's way too many. He'd be like, let's pair out some of those key results. Each one John. of these objectives is a realm all to itself. And there's subsidiary OKRs that are needed for the companies and for the plans. I'm not saying it's the only plan, but it's one where the numbers add up. It's one where a worried listener who's overwhelmed by the mass of this can get comfort, at least can get a sense of what needs to be done. It's simpler than it looks. It's six objectives, 55 key results six solutions, four accelerators. <laughs> That's a lot of numbers, man. You got my head spinning. But here's, the, here's my thing, right? I have granted from the outset of this interview that speed and scale and action plan for solving our climate crisis now is a clear blueprint to achieve a big thing quickly and that others are noting that the plan is rigorous and empirical. And if we were ever adopted and effectuated, it would be... First of all, it'd be like the most radical, incredible thing that's ever like happened in the history of public policy. But, but if it happened, you know, you'd be like, okay, that's great. I guess my question is twofold. One fold is, I don't know, I've had some experience like with books. I've written a few of them. I've sold some. None of them have ever been instruction manuals to save the planet. True. I mean, you know, you're way more powerful than me and you have way more resources at your disposal. And yet you're just one guy. You're not the president of anything. You're just a dude with a book. 
on a freaking show like this, sitting on a Zoom chat with me. I mean, that tells you how desperate you are. Look at this. This is how you think you're going to get this done. It's ridiculous, right? You said this was a mission when you started this out, right? So you put this plan out, people read it, people hear about it, they think it makes sense. And then what? It gets adopted somewhere. You're hoping to influence minds at the level of corporate leadership, political leadership. Do you think people will eventually come around and adopt the door plan? I mean, I know you have to be focused on the key results from the book, like what your metric of success with this book is, as Andy would say, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. How do you measure success that you've done a good job with this thing in terms of moving the needle? So I have measures. I want to see 300,000 of these plans in the hands of knowledgeable readers by the end of the year and a million of them by next year. And it's not just a plan. I want it to inspire. And so there's 35 memorable stories, John, of individuals, entrepreneurs, impassioned youth policymakers that have turned their lives upside down to try to create new markets or policy or drive these movements. And, and there's a companion website that gets launched that highlights and tracks over time the key progress that's made against each of these 55. And maybe we've got some of them wrong and they'll be corrected. We'll fail to achieve some of these and we'll have to course correct. But I intend for that to be a platform that we're investing in and updating all the time. I want to see an India and China specific version of the book with a co-author or a foreword or stories from those regions of the world, because I'm all about going for the gigatons. My goal is not to sell the most books. Truly, I'd love to give away the most books. And I can't think of a better way to be useful than to take the next couple of decades of my life and fortune and devote them to trying to get 59 gigatons to zero. That's the game plan. I wonder how many gigatons of this book are going to get sold. Probably most of them are going to be electronics. So they're not going to really weigh that much. The book is carbon negative. Carbon negative. Good. That's a good place to start. Uh, you were asked when you were in, in Scotland over in Glasgow at COP26, that sham of a conference, as Greta Thunberg put it, that greenwashing job blah, that you blah, agree, blah. That, you, that festival of blah, 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 yak, yak, yak. You said, I may not be optimistic about tackling this challenge. You said, I may not be optimistic, but I'm hopeful. For me, a student of the English language, I would like you to explain to me the difference between being optimistic and hopeful. Like, How can you not be optimistic, but also be hopeful? I think there's leaders in this movement who both must be optimistic and hopeful because they have lots of followers. They have an opportunity and a responsibility in this campaign that I don't enjoy. I'm not optimistic because there are powerful forces fighting hard to prevent this from happening. Political forces, which you cited, business forces, but still I, I can be hopeful. What gives me hope is to see a place like Walmart commit that by 2040 through their vast supply chains, they're going to be carbon neutral. They're going to be the world's first regenerative company that protects and preserves millions of acres of forest and, and ocean. I can be hopeful when I see the way that $150 trillion of investor capital is now committed to drive their portfolios to solve this problem. John, I can be pragmatic and fact-based and still want this to happen. And that for me is the essence of the difference between hope and optimism. Oh, it sounds good. 
Is that part of a speech you wrote somewhere? No. That's a good answer. I mean, I had thought and hoped I would stump you. You don't have to acknowledge that there was no difference between hope and optimism and I would win the game. But instead, you came up with a very solid answer to that, which I'm impressed by. Well, it's the truth and I'm sticking to it. And I'm going to use it in the future where I'm going to, I'm going to get that transcribed and I'm going to like maybe have it tattooed on my arm or something so I can like read it in the future. I, I want to say thank you for coming on the show. I want to say thank you for writing the book. It's obviously a huge fucking problem. And I think anybody who's taking it seriously, especially in the face of what I maybe think are more even daunting and overwhelming odds than you think to get this done. When I hear you talk about what has to happen, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I really mean it. Not in a dismissive way. I mean, good luck. If you can get all that done on the timetable you laid out at that speed with that scale, I'll buy you a Big Mac for sure, or a, or a latte or something. That'd be a pretty big thing. Bigger than Google, maybe. Well, let's do this at speed and scale. Plus, Mary Dora would, be, would not be mad at you anymore. Hey, I'll, I'll tell you the last thing I'll say before I let you go. If you ever decide that you want to do a joint event with you and Greta Thunberg, if you don't let me host that event, we're done. We're finished. We're I'm finished. inspired. The two of you together on stage someplace, we'd have to get somebody, some third party. But you two together, basically agreeing about everything, we would make a lot of fucking news. Who should we get to be the third party? Barack Obama? That'd make a lot of news. Especially you, Barack Obama, and Greta Thunberg all basically agreeing about how everybody's, how everybody's full of shit on this. Very strong. You get a lot of headlines out of that. You sell a lot of books, too. And selling a lot of books might help us solve the climate crisis at speed and scale. By John Doerr. It's always a pleasure. It's great to see you. Take care. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to John Doerr for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer, and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell. <laughs> That's our executive producer. 